Why does he employ general, the general terms of avoidance and warning rather than give more specific instructions such as those found in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5? The answer may be that it is difficult, if not impossible, to frame precise rules when dealing with personal relationships. Even in situations requiring discipline, people are still people, and hard and fast rules are seldom helpful. It would seem that Paul has deliberately left his instructions ambiguous within the broad outlines of avoidance and brotherly admonition. The point is to achieve the desired results of maintaining the church's health and holiness as well as encouraging the offender's salvation. We'll stop there. So what do you think about that? Because we talked a little bit about the difference in Second um, Thessalonians as uh, relates to Matthew 18 when Jesus you know, kind of we talk about the, the three steps that Jesus laid out when he was talking um, to his disciples or his apostles. And then in 2 Thessalonians, it seems a little more broad. Right? Paul doesn't go into specific um, step-by-step instructions. So, based on what we read and based on there being some differences there, why? Why do you think there's some differences there? I see First Thessalonians kind of as a um, maybe more something that someone needs to grow in. Okay. Um, like if there's a um, person who's struggling with money or, you know, we may not, what may be best for them may not be to just give them everything they need. There may be some distance that we need to put, certain boundaries we need to set. Um and so in that context, it's not necessarily the same as um, this, a blatant sin that needs to be cut off and addressed in that way, but um, something that needs to be, um, maybe some precautions that need to be made or some distance that needs to be put to the benefit of uh, okay. helping that brother or sister to grow. Okay. Okay. Good. And? don't understand his logic about um, the answer may be that it's difficult if not impossible to frame precise rules when dealing with personal relationships because both of these situations are called personal relationships and in Matthew 18 that's even more personal because it theoretically involves you know starts with two people so that I don't know that doesn't seem to me like that's the answer what, yeah, and, and, and I know what you're saying. The way that I took that, which may be wrong, but the way that I took that is I think he's leading up to the, his statement, and we'll see it again in this next chapter, that every situation is different. Every situation is different. That's true, but that would also be true of two people who, you know, one person who's offended by another. All oh, I agree. Those, all of those situations are different also. I agree. Yet I agree. There's more specific instruction in Matthew about how to handle that kind of situation. To me, the big difference is in both First Corinthians and in First Thessalonians, those are situations that are already out in the open and everybody knows about it. Whereas in Matthew, Jesus is specifically talking about how to deal with maybe private personal insults or sins and why 
it's very important to go through a specific process that protects everybody. The privacy? In, in privacy, reputations, establishes facts, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of situation. He's giving very specific instruction about how to work through that. Right, right. Yeah, and, and for me personally, and there again, we talked about this, and you know, it was one of these, I'm not going to tell you how you, should, how you should believe or how you should feel about this, but based on my study and the way I understand Matthew, I think Matthew is this one-on-one -on -one not related to the church as far as, as the church, like you say, the church knowing everything that's going on from the very beginning. And it's based on someone sinning against me, and so it's my responsibility personally and only at that point to keep it private to go to that person. Where some of these others seem to be a little more, like you say, more of a public sin, where people are aware, with, where there's also um, potential damage being done to the church itself. Um, so yeah, so I, I see a little bit of difference there, the, the way that I view Matthew versus Corinthians and Second Thessalonians. But yet, I still think our responsibility is the same, right? Our ultimate responsibility is restoration. That's, that's the responsibility, restoration. How do we do that? And how do we do that based on the personalities we're dealing with um, and based on um, you know, the sin itself? Is the sin um, truly detrimental to the church? Is this something that as a collective that we should be doing? Or is it like Matthew 18 um, where it's it's maybe more a personal sin directed at me and this is something that I need to at least begin that process personally and try to work with that person one-on-one. -on -one. Then ultimately if there's a problem and it continues and it can't get resolved then I think based on Matthew 18 we see some other steps that can be taken as well. So, David? I think what the author might be driving at is the fact that different people are different and so what's effective for one person might not be effective for someone else. And an analogy that comes to mind, uh, I mean, we raised three children. Did we discipline them identically? No. Because what worked with one didn't work so well with another. And so the acknowledgement of that, it, it, kind of makes sense, and I kind of think that's what the author might be driving at. And I, I don't have a problem with that, uh, as long as, you know, we are disciplining in doing so in the way that seems to be best for the person being disciplined as far as, you know, having the most effect. Okay. Okay. Mom? Yeah. Well, um, it kind of goes along with what David said, but um, of course, it's being stressed throughout this whole study about knowing everyone and, and having fellowship. But it's obvious that we can't all know everyone as intimately as we know somebody else. So I just take this as if the personal relationship is the spouse or a child or your best friend, there may be a different way of handling things than if it's someone that you don't know quite as well. Okay, okay. And I think that what we have to keep in mind too is that there is an end result that we're, we're striving toward, right? And that has to be, that has to be the ultimate focus. It's got to be this idea of restoration, um, of, of bringing them back. Um, and I think 
even if every situation is unique, um, what, what I write down here, the church must do what it can to remedy this situation. And that's, that's from his book. And, and, and it's not... Even, so, so if a situation is unique, it does not give us the right to say, well, because this is my child, because this is my parent, I'm not going to do any discipline, right? No, discipline is still required. Discipline is still required. Um, and I think where we, where we struggle is when we get to the point we say, well, because this verse says this, then every time I do... Well, if that's the case, then we've got some, some discrepancy even in, the, in, in the, the Bible. And we know the Bible does not, does not contradict itself, right? But we have principles laid out. We have ultimate um, um, guidelines within these. And keep in mind that even today, when we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 5, we're talking about a specific situation that arose in Corinth that they were dealing with. Now, are there principles within this specific situation that I think that we can apply to any time we do some discipline? Absolutely. But we're going to talk about are there certain things that, based on the type of sin it was and the effect it was having, did it call for... Um, um, something maybe a little bit different in that versus how we would deal with someone who maybe even just um, needed some discipline because they weren't quite as as developed in their faith as somebody else is, right? A newer Christian. They're still doing something. Um, they think it's okay, um, but yet um, as we study and as we talk with them, um, you know, help them to, 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 to see the light, help them to see God's word. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily approach that person in the same way, even though what they're doing may be known as a sin, we wouldn't approach that person the same way as we would someone who just blatantly said, this is what I'm doing, and I know you think it's wrong, but I don't care because I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, Craig. there's there's a different approach that needs to be taken when someone is sinning and maybe they were made aware of it but they didn't set out to to do that you know i think we talked about if anyone's caught right right caught in any sin right it's still sin it's still important that we address it and help them and you know, try to restore them uh what was happening in corinth like there was no question that what they were doing was sin. They all knew it. The person knew it. And there was an arrogance about it. And I think that's one of the reasons why Paul, and obviously we'll get into that, why he's so um, strict, so harsh, is because not only were they letting that sin continue, but they were actually uh, boasting in it. Right. Which is, um, it's a different type of approach. So Karen and I have been uh, studying with a couple of Mormons. And there's a temptation to, to think, oh, they know that what they believe is wrong. And it's, you know, it should be so obvious to them. Right. And so I'm going to hit them really hard with the truth. Well, I believe that what they believe, like, they really do genuinely believe it. And so my approach is still, let's talk about it. Um, they've got a misunderstanding. But I'm not going to go in assuming, well, clearly... You know that you're deceived, and right. um, you're choosing to believe a lie. No, right. it's, it's a different type of approach. Good. Well, let's take these thoughts and let's go into First Corinthians, because I think um, 
First Corinthians gets real. First Corinthians five gets real. Real, <laughs> it gets real, and it gets it gets into the weeds, right? Um, about a particular sin that uh, number one we don't even want to really think about, um, but they had to because they 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 we see an example where they had to deal with this. So First Corinthians chapter five. Let's actually just read verses 1 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 5 first. We're going to kind of set the stage. Um, Does anybody have the NIV in this class? I can get it. Yeah, I can. I was going to pull it up on mine too. I was going to. I'm going to read the NIV. or I'll just read the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is very similar, but I think is, is very good as well. Um, and then I'm going to read another version that I want you to listen to that is, well, not until we get into uh, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. I'll read a second version as well. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among even pagans or even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you for though absent in body I am present in spirit and as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you, are, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here he's setting the stage. Here you have um, a specific sin that he is instructing the church to deal with. And I think it's important that we keep in mind that this is written to the church, and these instructions are written to the church for a collective um, response. Okay, he's not talking individually here. He's talking to the church, to the group, Mama. and I think it's important because, and we've sta- talked about this in previous classes, but so much of the directive, the directives in disciplined scripture, is given toward the people doing the disciplining, and I think we want to focus on the one being disciplined. And we see that here. There's as much, if not more, that Paul talks about the church and what they are not doing and how they're handling this um, as opposed to what they are to do or, or the person that is... Now, trust me, he's not saying that that's not important because this is an egregious sin. But I think it's important that he's, he's, he's talking about their response to this and how bad that is and what they should be doing instead of what they are doing. So in, um, in the book, in chapter 10 on page 112, the beginning of this, about, eh, well, I guess it's the second sentence. He says, but because it does, talking about 1 Corinthians 5, because it does deal with a specific case, and a drastic one at that, 
we must keep in mind that it does not constitute a pattern for all instances of church discipline. Rather, it supplies guidance for dealing with extreme cases of moral deviation among Christians. And its voice should be heard more often than it normally is. So I want to discuss that. Discuss that thought, or that what, what the, uh, the author of the book said there. The fact that he says that because it does deal with a specific case, and let's just talk a little bit about the case first. So what is the case? Let's go ahead and just get it out in the open. What is the case here? Again, sleeping with his, his father's wife. Okay. But not only that, the church, to me as a whole, at least I wouldn't, I wouldn't say 100% because usually it doesn't work that way, but for the most part, the whole church is on board with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that, and on board with it, not necessarily that they think that it's okay, but they're on board with it how? Kind of yeah, yeah, like we are, it seems seems to be, we are so much more spiritual. Much more spiritual. We are so loving in Christ that we can even accept this, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So so we've got a situation of of a man, and we could talk about the, the hard and fast or or the specifics here in a little bit. I kind of disagreed maybe with one of his statements in here for sure about um, we, where he said, we can't know if, if I can find, I think I, so we can't know, oh yeah, here it is, <clears throat> page 114, um, about halfway down that, the actual middle of the page there, a little bit below that, it says, it is unclear whether the man's father is still living or if he is divorced from his wife. I, I disagree with that. Yeah, that struck me too. I disagree with that. Because number one, if the man's father was not living, then she would no longer be his wife, right? And there's a specific problem here that it's his father's wife. If, if his father was not living, it could just be that he was, he was um, having sexual relations with an unmarried woman. This would have been just a case, what we'd call standard case of adultery, right? <laughs> or fornication. Um, but no, this is specifically his father's wife. So to me... It seems that his father is still living, and I don't see an indication that there's even a divorce involved um, because of that, um, be, still being his father's wife. That, that um, you know, maybe they're separated, or maybe it's been found out that you know this is happening behind the father's back, whatever. But I, to me, that that's that's kind of important because I think if if it wasn't that case, then. It would still be a sin, but I think maybe it wouldn't be as egregious in the eyes of the church from a standpoint of, of the, when Paul brings up that even the pagans don't accept this, right? Um, the world would accept that if the father was dead or if there was a divorce involved. But because I think that there's still a viable marriage involved and this is happening, that's what makes it to the point where even the pagans, not that the pagans don't ever do this, Maybe because the pagan, you know, in the, the pagan world, anything goes. Even back then, it might have even been more debased than what it is now. Hard to believe, um, but if you read some of the the writings about um, in what took place in Corinth and some of the the pagan temples, it was disgusting. But the fact that um, it was not accepted as legitimate in in the pagan world, that's like you know, we don't, we don't even do that, right? Yeah. So so t- to me, this is a case of where. His father and his stepmother are still alive, 
and he is having sexual relations with her. Um, and I think they're still, father and stepmother are still married, um, from what I understand. But I, I do think that's important because, you know, he's talking about this, this case here. And, and ha, would he have addressed, do you think Paul might have addressed this, even this specific case, differently if the church was handling it differently? Yeah, I see you kind of shaking your head. They were handling it all. <laughs> if they were handling it at all, maybe, right. Yeah, 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 right, right. But here, Paul calls out the specific sin and what they're doing and, or not doing, right? What they're not doing. So I think it's interesting because this whole, these first eight verses um, are setting the stage and it's making sure that he's getting the attention of the church because as a church, you guys have a problem here. Not just a problem with this gentleman and what he's doing, but also a problem in how this is being handled or not handled. Um, or if you want to consider how it's being handled, the fact that you seem to be accepting this and saying, there again, it makes me think about um, um, Paul, right? And we talk, talked about the, the grace of Christ. Um, you know, um, uh, does that mean that sin can abound? Does that mean that we can just keep going on, go on sinning because there's the grace of Christ and it covers all sins? No, absolutely not. That's not what that means. But that seems to be maybe this mindset of, of the, the, the Corinthians in this particular case. But what do you think? Because it does not deal with a specific case and a drastic one at that, I think we must keep in mind that it does not constitute a pattern for all instances of church discipline. Rather, it supplies guidance for dealing with extreme cases of moral deviation among Christians. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? I think we've already seen that there, there's a different approach that needs to be taken with someone based on what we read in the previous chapter in, in Galatians. You know, he doesn't go to this extreme. Right. Um, g- give them every opportunity to repent, to change. Sometimes it's just a, it's a, a soft rebuke or a, a exhortation. Um, but don't let it go on. You know, so eventually, if it gets to this point where not only is he continuing in it, but the church is relishing in that, okay, there are some pretty extreme things that that he gives them authority to do. That's right. And what I find interesting, too, is that, it, I guess two things. First of all, it appears that there's another letter that they had received from Paul that we don't have record of, right? Um, so a previous letter, because he addresses that at the end of this chapter. But also that... We don't have an indication where Paul is giving them um, progressive steps how to deal with this. This is going from, here's the situation, here's the extreme responsibility that you need to do immediately, right? There's not, well, you need to go and talk to him. Um, You need to take two or three people with you and talk to him. Then you need to present it. No. This is, which I think is interesting, and he talks about that in the book, that not every case of disciplinary action involves delivering someone to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But here you have a situation where it appears Paul is saying, you need to go from here to here. There's no antecedents to get to this point. It's, this is where you're at, 
this is where you need to go because if you don't, you have no hope of saving this person and I think in the same light, you have no hope of maintaining the holiness in the church because you're already, you've already basically lost that. We need to get that back. Dave? Yeah, it does look to me that Paul is, uh, is saying because this has been going on, you've done nothing about it. In fact, you're kind of proud of it. That causes the extreme, you got to do something now. Because it is affecting the church. Because he brings up the leaven and, and how a little leaven can affect the whole lump, and it right. does. And in this case, it has. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. That's, that, I don't argue with it. Nothing else? Oh, Probably I said what you said. Okay. <laughs> you can say it in your own words if you wanted to. Okay. And? It makes me think of when um, Paul called Peter out when he came to Antioch and was behaving in a hypocritical way, and Paul called him out publicly. Um, because to me, the, the what's similar about these two situations is how dangerous it was for the whole church that when Peter, an apostle, came to Antioch, and was associating with the Judaizing teachers and kind of separating himself from these baby Gentile Christians who really, really needed his example in this area that the church was just starting to, you know, take root. That's a very dangerous time to have an apostle come from Jerusalem and set a bad example. And Paul called him out publicly right. immediately yeah. and um, whereas he, you know, like we talk about, especially like in Matthew 18, handling a situation like that where maybe somebody doesn't behave in a Christ-like manner, you might handle it in a whole different way under other circumstances. Again, like we talk about what's involved, what's at stake, what's the situation and so here in First Corinthians it's another situation where this man is poisoning the whole church, so he's really doing a lot of dam collateral damage for the kingdom in a very public way. So it needs to be dealt with very strongly, very strongly, publicly, and quickly. Quickly. Good, Rob. I guess I would add that you can't help but understand that the problems in this congregation are not just about this this. Um, man who's taken his father's wife. It's, mm -hmm. it's much deeper than that. Right. It's a bigger problem than that. It's not just between those three. It's the fact that they have gone so far away from following God's um, commandments or God's um, ways of teaching us how to respond and to have relationships with each other that they they don't even see this as wrong anymore. And if they do see it as wrong, they say, okay, we know it's wrong, but it's okay anyway. I mean, this is, this is a congregational problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's... It, there again, we keep reiterating that this is much bigger than just three people involved in this, in this sin, right? This is a congregational issue. And that's why I say that there is as much instruction and calling out of the congregation as there is of calling out the one that is involved in this sin. Because 
it's got to be taken care of and you are not going to take care of this one until you take care of the other. You, you, cannot, you cannot do what you need to do to try to restore this other person if the church itself is not holy, right? We keep going back to the very beginning of this class. The purpose is we are to be holy because God is holy. And if we are not, then how can we affect change in others? And I think you're, you're exactly right on that. David? And related to that, it makes the church, Christ's body, look very unholy Absolutely. to the world that it's supposed to shine as a light. And it's really defacing the name of the Lord himself. And I think that is also definitely involved in what Paul is telling them when he points out not even the world condones this. Yeah. So you're made to look worse than the world. Yeah. And that's a serious issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I don't think Paul is is necessarily or would have been necessarily shocked that there would potentially have been some immorality that was going on in the church because that can happen, right? But the the very fact that of course it's all sin, but the very fact that this is so absurd and so debased and so ridiculous that even the immoral pagans have rules and laws against this that they they as a whole the pagans don't even tolerate this but you seem to be relishing in the fact that we are so loving we're so right we're so righteous that we can overlook this person's sin and still accept him as a brother because that's what he wants to be he wants to be in our group great Clearly, Paul was concerned for this brother and also very much concerned for the church. Uh, we'll read about it in a future chapter, but they had a lot of work to do, both in how they should treat that brother now, and then he was prepping them for how they should treat the brother when he came back, you know, when he was ready to repent. Um, and I think there's also a how do we approach someone, how do we determine whether it's this really intense response right away or you know we come to them with exhortation sometimes it's the situation requires an urgency sometimes more than others situations do um, there was something happening in the church that he refers to as leaven like it doesn't take long for leaven to spread and so Sometimes the the approach that we take with that person is determined by the sin that they're involved with. How quickly is that going to do the, the damage? Um, should help inform our decision of how we approach it. Um, if no, we don't deal yeah. with this now. Right. Next week, what is it going to look like? Right. You know, tomorrow, what is it going to look like? Um, it appear, and I'm, this is going to be hard for me to say as far as hard to verbalize, so it may come across incorrect or wrong, but I just think through it with me. It seems to me that Paul is, if you really look at this whole situation as a whole, that Paul is stressing that the collective or the group, the holiness of that, must supersede even 
the ultimate concern for the individual. When he says, you need to deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and I don't think it means for his death, I think it means for the destruction of these fleshly sins that he's involved in, right? That Paul is saying, the goal is to have him come back, the goal is to do this so that maybe this will cause him to turn around, but worst case scenario, he doesn't. He's already with Satan. You deliver him there. That's where he. That's where he is saying that he wants to live, so that the church, so that the body of Christ, so that we can once again become holy as, as God is holy. I don't know if I worded that correctly. Like I'm not saying he's saying forget about this person, right? But if there has to be a choice, you remove this person because. The church needs to be holy. We are hoping that what we're doing takes care of that and will cause this person to repent and then they can once again. But the holiness of the church has got to be the priority. And the only way to do that is to remove blatant, unwanted sin from the group if it is causing the group, or in this case, because in this case it is causing the group to become unholy. And like Craig said, to... To, you know, they're accepting and in their acceptance of this, then they basically, the group was starting to not be really any different than this person. Maybe they weren't physically participating in what he was doing, but in their hearts, if they're accepting it, they might as well be, right? So, yeah, so it's a tough, tough situation. Um, yeah, on page 115, he talked about um, the fact that about halfway down, not only is the presence of immorality offensive to Paul, but so is the church's attitude toward it. He says, and you are puffed up. Um, so apparently there was an air of breath of um, There was an, oh, there, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Apparently, there was an air of broad-mindedness prevailing at Corinth that could not be offended by even so repugnant a situation as this. It may well be that the Corinthians felt their superior spirituality was vast enough to tolerate such things, and they were proud of that fact, if not of the situation itself. It isn't unusual in our own time to see churches overreact to legalism and a judgmental spirit by becoming overly tolerant and even proud of their superior understanding, a quality not possessed by their less enlightened brothers. Right. So, um, in 1 Corinthians 4.8 that he references there, Paul says, You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, but we also might reign with you. And so, you know, this idea that, that them feeling like they are superior, that they've, they have attained, almost, the spiritual realm that, um, um, that God wants them to be, and because they're there, then this is where they need to be. And I think Paul's putting them in their place, for sure. He's definitely putting them in their place. But then we get into, unfortunately, we get into, or... By unfortunately, I mean because of what the situation is calling for, um, what the church needs to do. And so, verses 9 through... 
We'll go just go nine through the end of the chapter, I think. But te- technically, nine through nine through um, eleven is is what we do, uh, or, or typically look at. But nine through thirteen. Let me read this from two versions. So I'm going to read it from the uh, ESV. And then I'm going to read it from, uh, I believe, the New Century version, which is they're another translation. It's not a paraphrase. Um, so 9 through 13 I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer, reviler, drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then if I go to the uh, CEV, in my other letter, there again, it seems like there's another letter that we don't have, obviously, because we just have this, um, we call this 1 Corinthians, and we have a follow-up letter, but it seems like there was another one before that. In my other letter, I told you not to have anything to do with immoral people, but I wasn't talking about the people of this world. You would have to leave this world to get away from anyone who is immoral or greedy or who cheats or worships idols. I was talking about your own people who are immoral or greedy or worship idols or curse others or get drunk or cheat. Don't even eat with them. Why should I judge outsiders? Aren't we supposed to judge only church members? God judges everyone else. The scriptures say, chase away any of your own people who are evil. So, couple different versions there. Um, and then the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, another uh, popular version. I'll, this is the last one. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a, a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbal abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is, is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. So, the reason I wanted to read from those three versions is because I think over the years, um, even the version that or my paper Bible here that I've used for years and years and years is the New King James. Um, but several versions say, but, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, or some versions say a sna- or not to keep company with a so-called brother. Okay, um, And so I think that we have... Um, and there again, this I'm going to you know say some things, and I want some would like some discussion on this. Um, but I think that we have probably used this particular case and these steps to apply to specific or apply to any and every form of discipline that needs to be done, no matter what is going on. And I think that um, if we are going to look at the scripture in its context, like we always want to say that we do, there again, I'm not saying that that there aren't other scriptures that deal with discipline that give us other guidance as well. I absolutely do that. But I think sometimes we fall back on this for certain things when I'm not sure there's a, a, a true correlation to you know, exactly how you have to do something. Because in this situation, it seems to be, if you look at the actual 
um, uh, the original language, this is dealing with someone who considers himself a member of God's church, right? This is, I mean, that's that's what it is about. It is a person that considers himself a member. I am a brother. I am your brother and sister in Christ. And so, in those situations, I think we can go to this and say, hey, we see an example of how this was dealt with. But there might be situations where it doesn't apply. Um, there again, I'm not saying there aren't other scriptures in the New Testament that deal with discipline for those other situations. I think there are. But I think we have to be careful that we don't just automatically fall to this particular passage and say this applies to every form of discipline whenever it reaches this ultimate stage. So, thoughts on that. And then we'll get into, obviously, where I, don't, I think we're going to have to carry this over to Wednesday night. Any thoughts on this? Agree or disagree? There again. That's why we have class. Open discussion. David? I think I agree. I mean, that is different from what we've traditionally been taught. Right. I don't know you know that. Right. But, yeah, I, I do see a distinction. Yeah. And there again, you know, I, I, I keep trying to stress, well, you're just saying that we don't have to. No, I'm not saying we don't discipline. I'm just saying that I think sometimes we have used this and I think, you know, he talks about it in here, and I think if you go to, to other commentators and, and other Bible scholars um, that have written over the years, you look that sometimes we fall back on this one specific case and say, whenever we need to withdraw someone, this is exactly how it has to be done. Step by step, what we can and can't do. When in reality, there this is a specific case based on someone where this seems to me where this has a good chance of working right so-called brothers or literally means someone who considers himself or or um, um, I wrote it down I'm gonna have to find it now it's either in my book or my notes I can't remember but whenever we see so-called brother this is the person that that um, um, counts himself as a brother counts himself as a brother right so he's saying, I'm a member, I'm a, I'm a Christian in good standing with God, I'm a brother in Christ. Um, well, that means that you expect the fellowship of everyone, right? We've got a situation that's not being taken care of, and Paul says, this is how you're going to deal with that, because he needs to feel like, he needs to feel the loss of something before he has any chance of, any chance of coming back. Micah? Is he still a brother? Is he? We, we talked in previous class about um, be, being a son and not losing that right. sonship. Right. Um, it mentions that he that he is walking not in accordance with, with God. It, um, as uh, the book said on 119, he calls himself uh, called themselves brothers yet live like pagans. But um, I'd be interested to know people's thoughts as to mm -hmm. is right. Yeah, what does that look like? Okay. Great. I, I had a similar question because huh? I've you know he's he's separating these two groups. He's saying, look, 
you've got the people of the world mm-hmm. who never bore the name of Jesus. They're right. pagans or heathens or whatever. You know, you'd have to go off of this planet to not interact with those people. I'm talking about these people. So he's making this distinction. I guess the, the question I have is, is he still a brother? I, I have seen the example of where someone simply says, well, I just don't want to bear the name anymore. So I was a Christian, but I don't want to be anymore. Therefore, I shouldn't be held to any kind of accountability. I want to be among the world. So I, I used to believe that, but I don't anymore. Therefore, you can't hold me accountable to these things right. anymore. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't see that that Paul is saying these things to make that allowance. Well, oh, you just you just take the name of Jesus right. off, and right. you can live however right. you want. Yeah, I don't see that Paul's saying that either in this case. But I think what Paul is addressing is a specific case and a specific situation in this. There again, you know, I think that we can go to other scriptures that deal with some of those things like that. But in this case, to me, it appears that this person is still participating in their worship. He's still joining them in their Lord's Supper. He's still joining them in their, if we want to call it their love feast. I'm not sure. There again, it goes to how, how you, you take this idea of not to eat with someone, and we'll talk about that Wednesday night. There's, there's several different ways to look at that. We'll discuss them both, Then I'm just going to say you've got to make that decision because I think that's, that's every, every scholar that you, you research on that says, this is totally unclear about that. We'll talk about that Wednesday. But yeah, but, but I think in this situation, it appears to me that, that this is a person that, number one, the church is accepting, and number two, he is still joining them with that anticipation of acceptance as well. There again, I think that we can address the other, and I don't think Paul is, I don't think we can go and use this like you say and say, well, because of that specific situation, then that means that you can't do this because I I no longer consider myself a brother. Right, right. So going back to Micah's question, is he still a brother? I think, you know, we talked about this whole idea of fellowship. I can't remember if you were in that class or not when we spent on the whole thing on fellowship. So yes, once a son, always a son. Once a brother in Christ, always a brother in Christ potential erring brother of Christ, right? But, but, is it, is there a difference in a situation where you have someone that is blatantly sinning and uh, still attending and still joining in the fellowship and still going to, you know, um, gatherings and get-togethers that we might have Versus a person that is walking away and saying, this is my choice, I'm going to do. Yes, I would still count you as a unfortunate, as an erring child of, of God. Um, and I guess we would have to define the term, what do we mean by brother as well? So you were going to... I just found it interesting that when we've looked at the other passages, Matthew 18, it doesn't say, if a so-called brother sins right. against you... Second Thessalonians doesn't say if a so-called brother is walking disorderly. It does refer. It just uses the term ref, uh, brother, but uh, right. So right. Something to think about. Okay. And I think it's clear from verse nine when he references this other letter that um, whether that first letter was about this specific person, this specific brother, or others who were living immorally and still associating with the church that he's really hammering home 
that these, either this one or these people in your church are in your church and participating fully in your church and you're accepting it. So he's, I think, trying to, you know, he's saying, I wrote you about this before. You're continuing to let people be among you and fellowship with you and associate with immoral swindlers, drunkards, idolaters. You're allowing this to go on concurrently with your worship, with your eating. Yeah, and I think, you know, it goes back to what Craig brought up too. I think it's so important. We, I know the last bell, sorry about that, but so important. We talked about little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. Paul was talk, Paul said that. There is an emphasis on you have to get this 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 yeast out of the congregation because if you don't, it is going to ruin the whole this whole lump of dough, this whole congregation. And that's the focus here, you know, that, that we have to have to do that. Do want- I was gonna say, in the room like we talked earlier, you know, we don't discipline our kids the same for whether he did this or he did this. You know, you would it's not cookie cut. Right. So right. we gotta look at everything. Right, yeah, we do have to look every, at everything. Every situation, yep. so. And we'll pick this up again on Wednesday night, and you know we'll go ahead and continue um, in how uh, the next chapter was how we are to address when this particular situation, especially, but when I think it applies to anybody, when anybody decides to come back um, and repent of their sins, what should our or the church's responsibility be toward them as well? So, thank thank you for your comments. Real appreciate it.